Hey, I'm Craig Finn. My new record of Legacy Rentals is about memory, how we remember friends that are gone, places that have changed, and major events that are part of our past. The songs are memorials, incantations, affirmations, legends, and prayers. Like all stories, they're subject to the imperfection and limitations of memory, the distortion that happens to our own histories when stretched by time and distance. These small adjustments often become part of the stories themselves. I love talking about this stuff, so I created this podcast. It's called That's How I Remember It, and examines the connection between memory and creativity. Each episode features a discussion between myself and one creator, a musician, an author, a filmmaker, etc., about the role that memory plays in their art. These conversations reveal different ways each creator synthesizes their remembered life experience to tell stories about themselves and the world we live in. My guest today is Allison Moore. Allison is a singer, songwriter, producer, and author. She's released 10 critically acclaimed albums beginning in 1997. Her first memoir, Blood, came out in 2019 to an amazing reception. Vividly describes a family tragedy she and her sister Shelby Lynn lived through, and the life that they forged afterwards, both as extremely successful singers and songwriters in Nashville and beyond. Allison holds an MFA in creative writing from the New School, and last year she released her second book, I Dreamy Talks to Me, as well as a fantastic EP of new music called Wish For You that she made with her son John Henry and came out this year. We are thrilled to have Allison joining us, and that's how I remember it. History's rewritten when the memories get meddled with the way that I remember it. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. That's so nice. <laughs> well, I'm going to start where I start all of these, which is a question. Um, do you think you have a good memory? That's a very good question. And one we do not ask ourselves often enough. Right. We just sort of go about assuming that we do, right? I think memory is selective. I think confirmation bias is real. I think that we all have a really specific filter. So my answer is yes and no. I think that uh, those of us who carry trauma, for instance, as I do, as my sister does, and we talk about this a lot, we talk about our memories because they are lifelines for us. They sort of make us feel real. If we can remember details about the things that happened in our lives, then we can go back to them and go, oh yeah, that really did happen because I remember that the clock on the wall said 333 or something. I turned 50 years old a couple weeks ago and I'm having a real moment with it. And I know you're about the same age as I I'm am. Fi- yeah, I'm 51 next month, so just a little Okay, bit. so you probably know what I'm talking about. This yeah. thing that really happens, and you go, they said that this would happen, and I didn't believe it, and they were telling the truth. I think that that sort of memory can be a detriment to us. What I've discovered about myself recently is I have relied on this sort of incredible memory. And it's so funny because I said to someone, there are times at which I have a photographic memory. It is crazy. We had a house sitter staying at our house recently. Hayes and I were on a trip and the house sitter was looking for a key to a door. And he texted me and he said, where's the key? And I just picked up the phone and I called him and I said, open the drawer to the left of the dishwasher, the key 
is in the fourth bin from the bottom, because of course my junk drawer is completely organized with these little bins from the container store. Like, so I can completely visualize where this key is. I'm like, open the drawer. It's in the fourth bin from the bottom. You'll see it. It's a gold key. It's on this little ring and it's in the bin that has the blah, blah, blah in it because I can see it. And what's crazy about that is, is I, I think I have those sorts of memories in my mind and I've always carried those sorts of details with me because of fear. Because if I don't remember everything, I'm going to be wrong and something bad is going to happen. You know, I'm starting to unfold these things about myself. And what I've always considered my superpowers, my memory, my ability to be resilient, I can cope, I'm great in a crisis, blah, blah, blah. My superpowers, well, they are. They most definitely are. They're also absolutely horrendous defense mechanisms. So that's a long-winded answer to your question, but that's just how I feel about memory right now. When, when, when I started this, I had a theory that almost every writer was going to say they have a great memory. And what I found is more often, and a lot of the people I'm talking to are roughly our age, are people that said, yeah, I, I have a good memory for certain things. However, I'm starting to question some things. And I, I feel the same way. Like I've maybe built some stories in my life on things that are a little off. And if you get the foundation of a house wrong, the house goes crooked, you know, at, at the top. And I, I sort of feel like there's more and more things I'm discovering about that. And I, and I think that's fairly common. But I'm curious, how do you think, you know, the good parts of your memory, the detailed parts of your memory, how do you think that helps you as a, as a songwriter, but also as a writer? I think it's a must to be able to draw details whether they're true or not, when it gets down to it. You know, the thing I love about memoir is the only person it has to be true to is you. (laughs) 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 I've written two of them. They are 100% true to me. Not saying they're true to anybody else. And they don't have to be. I think we do find out that our memories are completely unreliable. But you do have to have that, I think, in your work. If you're writing prose, you need details. You need something to make it rich unless you're not doing that. You know, same with songwriting. You know, you've got to have some word power. You've got to have some juice. So bringing in those details, yes, it's, it's, I think it is very important. That's where the devil is, right? <laughs> yeah, a screenwriter I spoke to talked about, he's called it a hollow body, and he thought, if you don't put enough details in it, if there, there aren't enough, then it's like one of those Easter candies that you bite into, and it's sort of disappointing because it's not chocolate the whole way through. And I, I thought that, I, I got that. You know, I know I write a lot of songs about things I didn't do. You know, I write a song about a bank robber, but I have to put the bank on a corner I've walked by. You know, I, I have to relate to the location. And if it's not honest on that level with those details, then I, then it just, it doesn't work in my mind. So I think that's, I think that a lot of our honesty or a lot of our memory shows up in the surrounding parts of our work, maybe not always in the forefront. Just thinking about memory in general, music's obviously very important to you. Do you have early, early music memories? Do you like the first time music moved you? I I don't know. I don't know because I was born into a musical family. My parents were musical. My mother's parents were musical. It was just something that everyone did. Everybody played music, you know. 
We grew up in South Alabama. My mama was one of 14 children, and they pretty much all sang, and they all lived near each other. So it was kind of that thing like my grandmother's house was the hub, and she would have, you know, on Friday or Saturday nights from time to time what she called a fiddling. So everybody would come and bring their instruments. Everybody would sing, and people played music. It's what they did. It was fun. It was cool, and everybody could sing a part and play a little bit, and it was just... It was a cool thing that I didn't even know was cool at the time. Nobody I know now does that, which is a shame, you know? Like, sometimes Hayes and I will have what we call a picking party. So mm-hmm. now that I know how to find you, you'll be invited to the next one. I think we're going to have one in the fall. That sounds amazing, actually. <laughs> you know, bring your guitar. We'll sit around. We're going we're gonna to pick, you know? It's a song. Just everybody picks. We make a big bunch of food, and it's a blowout. That's fun. Um, But I grew up like that. So my mom and daddy had records, and we lived so far out in the country, there wasn't anything else to do. There weren't any other children. It's just my sister and me. We had our bicycles, and we had animals, and we had the woods. We had the pond down below our house, and we had records. So I've never known a life in which I was not doing music somehow which is very special. So it's very strong in my life. It's just a theme. It isn't something that I can separate away from myself. I continue to want to make music. The ways I do that change, but that's okay too, because it's it's always playing some big role in my life. When um, I was talking to someone else who grew up in a very musical family, and, and I, we were, I, I asked them, and I'm kind of interested, was there ever a record or an artist or something that felt like yours versus your parents or your families? Was there a first, anything like that? Or was it always connected to your family and friends? It's so interesting. And it's so good to get old enough to get some perspective on that too. My parents liked country music. That's what they listened to mostly. It's what we mostly listened to in the car. Their record collections spanned from, you know, sort of late 50s to, this would have been mid-70s when I really started paying attention to what was on the labels. So we're talking about, you know, probably a 20-year span of, of music. And in that was everything from Hank Williams to Elvis Everly Brothers, Buck Owens, the Beach Boys, Beatles, early Beatles. Then a little bit of folk scare stuff, not much. Christofferson, Waylon and Willie, early Bee Gees, going up to sort of mid-70s, you know, a lot of different sort of roots music in there. What I've thought about recently, and this is part of Turning 50, I'm sure you'll relate to this. I remember now, this is one of the things that you sort of go, wow, I'm starting to remember some stuff that I have not thought about in so very long. As I sort of go through this reckoning of beginning what I hope will be a very rich second half. I was so drawn to classical music when I was a kid. I wanted to know about it. I wanted to hear it. I remember there was one album in our record collection that had come from one of those free things that you get in a magazine, like National Geographic sends you a record or Time or whatever it is sends you this album. Because my parents had no classical music. There was this one record that had come as a freebie, and the first track on it was this beautiful classical piece that had, that I had heard a movie version of Romeo and Juliet as like a teeny tiny little girl. And that 
recording was on this record and I used to listen to it all the time. And I would sort of fantasize about what if I lived in a different place and I could do something like take ballet lessons or I could learn to play classical uh, piano or the cello. I was obsessed with the cello and I have never ever allowed myself to touch one. And for my 50th birthday, I vowed that I would learn. Oh, cool. The cello. So that's what I'm going to do in my second half. So I'm starting to go back and go, wait a minute. There's some other things going on here. And I sort of got shifted into this lane because that's what was available. Mm -hmm. But there might have been some other things there that I want to go back and try to remember before it kind of got molded by whoever. I think, yeah. And by the way, people like overhyped turning 40 to me. That was no problem. But 50 hit a lot different, you know, and uh, I'm having some of these same things. What, and, and, and some of this is about why I'm doing this, but, you know, one of the things I know when I go to other art, books, movies, films, there's this like era, which I think is like roughly the Nixon era that I love anything that's from. And I realized that that's probably because that's when I was forming memories for the first time. And so I'm looking in the background of these like sev- movies from 1974, I was born in 71, to see details that the, the cities look like the cities I would go to. You know, the men dressed like the men, the women dressed. So it, it, it's, there's something comforting, but I'm almost reaching for something to confirm something. And I'm curious if you have had, if you have any like eras or, you know, periods, anything like that, that you are drawn to in other people's work. I definitely have a sort of, 1976 to 78 thing, like a mid to late 70s attachment. And I have a repulsion to early 80s, like 1980 to 1983. Oh, oh, it's my worst, my worst. Because I would have been like a tween then. But those years, those years, you think it's just a, being that age is is uh, has sullied those years for you? I think it was just uh, a time at which I felt very unsafe in my life, mm-hmm. and everything. When I think of it, I immediately visualize this sort of dark brown and charcoal and black palette. You know, that's this really early '80s funk. Reagan, like, just comes to my mind. <laughs> like, bad hair and power suits and everything is gray and brown and just not very good. I have, like, a, my junior high, I've been telling people, I remember my junior high years in black and white. And I was a nerdy kid. I was having a lot of problems at school. And I just don't, you know, I do not have color memories of that. And it was later on, like the Wizard of Oz, when I made better friends, et cetera. But, you know, when things became bright. But I, I, I think there are, is that for all of us. Is there like music that sounds better to you at different times of the year or in different places, et cetera? Oh, yes, definitely. Like, they're definitely summertime records and wintertime records. Um, you know, wintertime, I want to hear Leonard Cohen and I want to listen to Astral Weeks a lot and a lot of jazz, you know, warm, warm records. And then in the summertime, I'm like, I want Tom Petty and I want, um, you know, uh, 
there's this one crazy track that I love by, remember that that studio band, Gorillaz? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's this one track they have that I listen to constantly in the summer. Um, it's called Feel Good. It's like 20 years old. It's crazy. Um, just, yeah, I have really specific ideas about what songs should be played in what moment. <laughs> of course I do. You lived in New York. Was there music that sounded better in New York than does in Nashville or et cetera? And vice versa. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't listen to much country music there. Mm-hmm. It just didn't feel right. It's like, what? That makes absolutely no sense. The setting has to be right. I'm an aesthetics person. Like, yeah. it's, I, I am a detail stickler. If something is off, I'm just going to be the pee under the mattress because it's just my curse. Yeah, yeah. I'm annoying that way. <laughs> I think it's, I think we all do that. I mean, I, I know in the summer in New York, like, Electric jazz sounds best to me. Miles Davis, that sounds like city music to me. Um, yes. But when I go go home to Minnesota, I would never, I'd never put that on. And we all have those. We're talking about summertime. I have a question here. That easy in the summertime song. You put your lyri- the lyrics to it right in um, in the memoir. Blood. It's. I, I've read that you find that an important song to you as a writer. With an accident in the house, and then the camera's sort of in my mind zooms way out. Can you tell me why it shows up in the book in the way it does and what that song, you know, what that song means to you? It's like most things. It has a couple different answers. When I started writing the record that Easy in the Summertime is on, let's see, I made that record in 2009. So this is like around 2008, 2009 when I'm writing these songs. And I had started really focusing on economy, not being wordy, and just less is more. I had also sort of opened up in a musical way when I was writing those those songs. I'd really started finger-picking a lot, and then this was a piano song, and I hadn't done that much piano writing and blah, blah. I just had that phrase, easy in the summertime, easy in the summertime. And I often do that. I, you know, what when I write a song, it will start with a phrase, an idea, a title or something that gives me a theme. And I'll just have to knock that around until I get get it ready. And that moment just came to me. And then I recounted the story again in the book, which is why the song appears again. So that's why it appears again. Plus the way the memoir is constructed, each section, it's set in three sections, and each one begins with five what I call interstitial pieces that sort of appear. Those pieces started because sometimes I would have something I needed to say or a bridge I needed to create, but I couldn't figure out how to work it into the narrative in the way that I wanted to because I'm not good enough. So I would have to rely on my songwriter skills or muscles and be able to bring that idea of economy to get the emotion across or build the bridge or whatever it was I was doing to establish that moment in the book that needed to come that wasn't taking place in what I called the sort of main text. It's there to sort of underline the story because I tell the story as narrative. Isn't that in part two? I think it is part two, which is largely about my sister, and that is a song about my sister. So... It just all sort of coexists and is, and it gets, you know, art is slippery and watery that way. And it can make you uncomfortable if you think about it too much. <laughs> but 
sometimes you have to be self-referential. I don't think we ever feel great about doing it, but sometimes when you, if you've been making art long enough, it happens. I felt, I felt like when I was reading it, it felt almost like foreshadowing, like, like this is, this is up ahead, you know, these songs, these, um, this art that that's going to come from, uh, where we are from from these things that are happening, life experiences, that that accident in the kitchen, the fire, etc. Hey, I'm Craig Finn. Here on That's How I Remember It, we often talk about music. So I wanted to mention DistroKid and their new app for iPhone and Android. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. Over a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. With this app, you can sign up and pay for a new DistroKid account or sign into an existing one. You can upload new releases. You can get notified when you've earned royalties, edit your account details, check your streaming stats, add lyrics and song credits, edit release metadata, and so much more. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. But you are the first guest. You're the first guest on the show to have written a memoir. So now you've written two. Uh, I'm particularly interested in that. Did you feel like telling your story and getting it right to you, was that important? Like when you decided to do this at whatever time, and maybe it was a long time ago, was that the goal? Partly, yes. You know, who can say why we are first compelled to make art? There's something in us that needs to express ourselves. We need to communicate. We've been given a gift from whatever you want to say the gifts come from, whatever source, to communicate with others. I think the role of artist in the universe is incredibly important because we're the feelers and we write the roadmaps for people to be able to articulate their emotions. We write the guides for that. Without the artists, everybody's just sort of flopping around and not being able to express themselves. And we're just, you know, we have, we're doing that work. And we're going in and we're saying, what is in me? And drawing that out and putting it out there. And then somebody who can't do that goes, oh, well, that sounds familiar. Thank God somebody said that for me. So it's an honor and it's a responsibility and it's a pain in the ass and it's fun and it's the greatest job in the world and it's frustrating. <laughs> and anyway, so I have that and I've always had that desire to communicate, to commune. And, and, and I think that also comes from, you know, I was very isolated as a kid. I felt muzzled. I didn't feel like I could say what was on my mind. I saw a lot of crap and was unable to say that it was crap. <laughs> I wasn't supposed to say anything about anything. Nobody talked about what was going on. And so I had just had this real like, uh, frustration. And I think that sometimes when I get going, I'll just tell it all. I mean, I hope, you know, within some boundaries of what is graceful, but not always. Um, because I was so young when my parents died. My parents died in a murder-suicide. Mm -hmm. I was 14 years old, and I recount that story in my memoir because, well, that's just a defining moment, and you kind of have to get that out in the open right off the bat because who are we trying to kid? And that's an Annie Dillard, Annie Dillard rule, too. Get all your sicknesses, maladies, and deaths out of the way. <laughs> so I was 14 when that happened. It was on the news. It was in the newspaper. 
You know, there wasn't a moment when no one knew, when, when people didn't know that about me. Mm-hmm. You know, after my parents died, I went and I lived with my aunt and uncle. And it was a small town. And of course, everybody knew, but nobody said anything. So that was weird. Hardly anybody said anything in my family. You know, it was sort of just like, suck it up, get on with things. Nobody can deal with this. Everybody is heartbroken. We're destroyed. We have no idea what to do, but we're not going to talk about it. Sure. (laughs) My sister started making records when she was very young. I think her first record came out when she was 20, 21, something like that. She was a child. And by the time her second album came out in 1990, the story was everywhere. She's everywhere. It was in every piece of press. And this is back in the day of, like, newspapers and people read them. And, like, um, you know, big glossy magazines. And people read those, too. So it was everywhere. And, And there was a time, you know, when I first got started in Nashville, that story was just all over the place. And it just, it, it, in, in a lot of ways, it preceded me. It's heavy. And I didn't like talking about it. And I was prickly about it. It was painful, you know? It wasn't just something I wanted to talk about all the time. So if a journalist wanted to ask me about it and I had some response, you know, I was made to feel bad about that. Instead of having any sort of power or tools to say, hey, you know, that's probably not the place to discuss that. And that's a sensitive subject and that's not, it's not cool. You know, I didn't have any of those skills. Anyway, by the time I decided to write this book, it was important to me that I give my parents some sort of voice because I felt like they had been reduced to these tragic figures and nothing about the cool part of our lives was ever said. And it was also, you know, I mean, who can say why anybody would do what I did, you know? And I look back now and that book has been out, what, for almost three years. But I started the process of writing it almost 10 years ago. And who I am now is a much, much different person. And that was part of the reason I did it too. And, and when we're at ourselves, it is not a self-indulgent exercise. Right. But it can be, you know, that's part of it. We have to be honest about that too. Sure. I wanted to say some things that I did not that I couldn't fit in a song. I <laughs> just couldn't, you know? I also wanted to learn how to do that. You know, I've always wanted to write and I and it, it felt good to me. It felt very natural to me to write prose. It still does. When it works, I feel more like myself than any other time. I, I r- learned a fair amount of new words reading the book. I'm sorry, Sven- that sucks. No, Sven- no, no, only about four, but that that's pretty that's pretty good. There's one I, I already forget. It means like laziness. I looked it up and I already forgot the word. But um, uh, Svangnum, uh Bell Heavy. I've, that is a phrase mm-hmm. I never heard. So I, I I wondered if you all if you have an expansive vocabulary naturally from just reading, or have you always do you do you look for words? If I find a cool word, I write it down. I do. I keep a list because I'm fascinated by words, and words are so cool. Like who comes up with how does it? And then I like to go back and see the root of the word, and then you know, um, lassitude. That's the the word you're talking about. Lassitude. It means a lack of desire. 
right. to do anything. It's like, it's a step beyond lazy. It's like, kind of gives you a bad, it's that gray and brown feeling. <laughs> <laughs> the early 80s. Is it teenage? Do you think, is it teen, would a teenager be less lassitudinal? Sometimes. I wasn't, but. <laughs> I had my moments. You know, you're talking about communication, and that's a really good uh, segue into this most recent EP you made, Wish For You, which is really, really fun to listen to. And, you know, Thank you, you speak of the role music played in your childhood home and in, in the book, Blood, but this is a family collaboration in your current home as parent. It's a collaboration between you and your son, John Henry. Your son comes up with melodies. It ends up being a really inspiring and super soulful record. Where, what was the genesis? Like, what? how long ago did you decide to do it, and, and what happened? Well, thank you. First of all, it, I've never felt more joyous or more free making music um, than when I was working on those songs. We've had a journey with music with John Henry. My son is, is 12 years old now, but he was diagnosed at 23 months with level three autism. He um, started talking at about a year old, but only had language for about six months. So he does not use words at present, but he does pick up on melodies a lot and he makes up his own melodies. You know, he's very sound sensitive at the same time. And there was about a two year period between the time he was diagnosed and the time he sort of got through it where certain pieces of music he could not listen to. Um, certain arias would make him cry. And it was just this, anything with a, a, a lot of emotion, it just, he it was too much and oh, that was just, it was a lot. It was a lot. A lot of emotion around that and just trying to keep him safe and, but also not, not having music, you know, just being careful about it and then building his stamina and just, you know, being able to be open about that's, you know, emotional. So anyway, he would just make up these melodies. It was three years ago. He was at the park with a teacher one day, and he was on this old glider. If you ever take a kid to a park, there's, you know, all this equipment and, and this crazy glider that sort of does it. It's like a seesaw, but different. And this one had a squeak. He was on it, and the teacher was pushing it rhythmically so that the rhythm was smooth. And he picked up on the squeak, the, the, the rhythm of the squeak. And it was, he started stomping his foot to that rhythm. And then he started singing in between the beats and doing this sort of do, 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 do. And she videoed him. I took that video to my producer, Kenny Greenberg. He made a loop of that. And I wrote a song called All We Have Is Now to that loop. So John Henry is throughout that song. He has a couple of others, what I call his main greatest hits melodies, um, that I just took and, and sort of put in middle C so that they could go a lot of different places. Mm -hmm. And Kenny and I wrote songs around them. And why not? That's, that's my way of helping him bring to fruition his ability, you know? And I think that we have to do that in this world. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's really, it's really, uh, it's really amazing. I spent a lot of time with it in the past few days and it's got, you know, a lot of different genres. It's cinematic, it's psychedelic. It's got even when those two songs connect, it's, it's even like a progressive rock kind of moment, uh, <laughs> you know, where, um, but it's, it's very positive. 
And yeah. as you said, there's a lot of joy in it. Is this a reflection of where you're at overall, you think? It's a reflection of how I feel when I am with him and he is happy. Mm-hmm. When I feel like I am helping him find his sweet spot or when he's just in it and I'm able to observe. I have learned so much from John Henry and he is not solely responsible, but I would put him at the top of the list of the people in my life who have shown me a path out of the trauma and anger and damage that I suffered as a child. Mm -hmm. You know, he in so many ways is my chance to leave that behind. And it's interesting because he is my family member and he is in so many ways the soulmate for me. I feel so fortunate despite our challenges in in moving through the world and despite what are his challenges and what will be his challenges. It is our choice to see what the gift of it is. And we work hard and that we have a really good time. And it is my honor to bring joy to his life because he, you know, it's not a return, but what else am I going to (laughs) do? You know? (laughs) I, I wrote down the last words of the EP is you're flying, I'm flying, your heart, my heart, thank you. And that is incredibly beautiful. And maybe saying what you're saying right now, you know, it's it, it there's a gratitude there that, that comes through on the whole recording and makes it spectacular to listen to. I do have one final question for you, which I think I've asked most people. You know, you've, you've had a ton of success. You're doing a lot of stuff. You're writing books, etc. At this point, you can do what you want. You've accomplished a ton. Do you think about legacy or do you just go to work? It's so funny that you're asking this question because I've been thinking about this. I have never one time thought about my legacy. Never one time. I have been such a worker. Mm-hmm. just a worker. I keep my head down. I, I finish one thing and I'm ready to go on to the next. And it's such bullshit. <laughs> it has been, I never knew that I was a workaholic until recently. I didn't know that was my thing. I had no idea. I thought I was just, well, I just got to keep pushing this rock, you know. And I did not know I was using that as a way to avoid pain, intimacy. Mm-hmm relationships. I was using my art and my work to hide. So it's this weird thing. It's like I've been taking my clothes off through my art and just absolutely hiding inside of it and hiding from life inside of it. I didn't know I was doing that until recently when I hit a wall and I hit the wall after my second book came out. I just, just this giant pause button came up in front of me. It was like, you're not, because I'm like, oh, yeah, well, I'm just going to, I've got that idea for the novel. I guess I'm going to start researching. And it was like, no, you're not. Yeah. Guess what, honey? (laughs) (laughs) And did the, did the pandemic, did the pandemic play into that or, or, or just life in general? I didn't hate the pandemic. I didn't hate it. I, you know. I like being home. I figured out how to do the live stream thing. I have a small but mighty audience. They helped a lot. Um, I didn't. I didn't hate that, but I did change. I did change. I figured out that I didn't have to be on the the cycle, the the that wheel. You know, 
that just constant, you do one thing, you do the thing, you do the things that go with the thing, and then you think the next thing, and then you're always just doing something. Yeah. And then you're creating these reasons and these stories, these narratives, this language, this everything has to have meaning and layers, and it's wonderful, but you can sure as hell lose yourself in it. I did and do and love it, but I have to be careful because I can completely find an excuse not to participate in life because I'm participating in making something. And my son and my husband and my friends and my family deserve better than that. So I'm, you know, that's where I am right now is I've hit a pause button. I have promised myself that I'm going to learn how to play the cello and that's all. We'll see. That's great. (laughs) That is great. No one's more surprised than I am. Well, yeah, like I said, 50 hits hard and and it's time that I think we naturally reassess some things and uh, I did it too, but I really, really enjoyed our conversation. You've given me a goal to be invited to one of these picking parties, so keep me in mind next time that you plan one and uh, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Huge thanks to Allison for joining me and talking through all of that with me. It was a really great conversation with an aspiring and evolving artist. I highly recommend you check out her memoirs, Blood, and I Dreamy Talks to Me, as well as the very cool new EP, Wish For You. I look forward to seeing the cello developments as well. Big thanks also to Dadgrass. You can go overhead to dadgrass.com. Use discount code FIN to get 20% off your total. And a huge thanks to you for coming and listening. I'll be out on tour this fall in Europe and the UK and the US. Dates are at craigfin.net. I hope you come out and hang in person. In the meantime, I've got some amazing guests coming up here, so listen and subscribe to That's How I Remember It.